Hey, it's Andy Jenkins here. I, I've got this verse I've been pondering for the last couple, uh, probably a, about a half a week. It, it's not the whole week. Uh, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his face sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's Luke 22, 44. Uh, praying, imagine that so fervently that the sweat on your face, it turns into blood. This is the condition of Jesus. This is what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, for the last couple weeks, I've been talking about this idea of redemption. And the main idea, uh, redemption meaning the word freedom. The main idea being that every place Jesus bled, he redeemed or brought some degree of freedom to you and I. Because the scripture says that we're redeemed by the blood. So we're, we're freed by the blood. We're not just freed at the cross. We're freed at every single place that he bled. And so really been pondering on this one because I think this talk and next talk, I'm going to really dive into this idea of what, what really does it look like? What really does it mean that Jesus bled and sweat when he's in the garden and he lays down his will and says, not my will, but yours. Um, now, it's it's Thursday. Let me kind of shift gears, just tell you what's going on. It's Thursday. I usually release these on a Tuesday, so you're probably catching this if you're catching it on the first release on Tuesday. I would encourage you to subscribe via Apple Podcasts. You can grab this on my website. It goes up. You can get on my email list. It's there. Uh, also, you know, this information, I've, I've put it in a paperback book that I've, I've been working on, you know, going back and kind of refining the ideas for a couple years. And so all of that's on my website. I'll, I'll give you the ebook absolutely free. Uh, I would love for you to get the paperback, but if you want the information just to put on your computer, to scan, to print, to study, whatever, to look through, backtrack the verses, uh, you can grab that. I'll put a link to the ebook down in the show notes. And if you're on my email list, I'll blast that out this week and just let you know, hey, the, the ebook is here. Uh, one thing that I do want to do is I want to invite you to the Facebook group that I've set up to, to really talk about just practically living out. Uh, now, here's the topic, work and life balance. Uh, the, the word that's used for that is ULA. Uh, two of my friends, uh, Troy Omdahl and Dave Braun, came up with that. Um, that's really a book that they wrote. It's a life uh, course that they created. Uh, I'm actually a certified life coach with those guys and with their whole process there. And, and really, ULA comes from the word ULA-LA, when there's just this, everything seems to be working right there seems to just be kind of this flow, this groove. And so really in that group, we talk about all of the seven key areas of life, including your family, your fitness, your finances. A big one is your faith and how that really infuses all areas of life. And if you listen to the previous podcast episode, you remember that I talked there about your freedom and your experience of faith being something that, that we live now. Like even to use the Christian vernacular, salvation is now. It's not something that we punt off to the future and wait for the promises of God to come into effect when we die. It is it is something that is for sure for then, but it's also for now. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. Not not just among you, which it is, but it's also 
deep inside. And so in that group, and I'm going to put a link in it in the show notes, in that group, we really try to discuss, uh, we, we cover a new topic each week, and we cover uh, one a week, and, and really just try to make life work the best we can and push each other, encourage each other, applaud each other to uh, really just live what, what would be your, to use the word, your your ULA life, your best life. Now, you're created for extraordinary, so don't, don't, don't settle for ordinary. All right, so let me shift in. By, that's by way of commercial. All the links to that are in the show notes below. Uh, let, let me shift into the topic for today. Here, here's the topic, is that core idea of Jesus bleeding. The, the first place he attain, obtained a, a facet of our redemption, a pa- facet of our freedom, it was in the garden. Now, here's what I want you to see, is the garden is the same place that humanity originally lost our freedom. So the, the fall happened by a deliberate, intentional act of the will, and our will, that's going to be the first thing Jesus redeems. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you in a second why that's important. Now, when you go back into the Garden of Eden, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, the fall happens in Genesis chapter 3, you see that Eve ate the fruit first. Uh, we, we often picture it as an apple. I've, I've got a picture on my wall in my hall next to my... Uh, I guess it's kind of my TV room. What do we call that? The den? Um, you know, in the South, we just call it the TV room. It's got a picture of the Last Supper, and on there, it's kind of referring back to the fall. It has an apple on it. We picture it as that, but we don't really know what the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil was. We do know that Eve was deceived. She was tricked into eating it. Uh, scripture says that, Genesis 3.13. Uh, the New Testament says that, 2 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Timothy 2.13 and 14 say that Eve was tricked into doing it. And if you look into the Genesis account, we never see a place where God actually tells her directly not to eat of that tree. Now, on the other hand, think, think about this one. We do see God tell Adam not to eat from the fruit of that tree it's, it's almost as if there's this inference that he should lead and protect Eve. Um, we, we see that in Genesis 2.16. There's almost that there's an inference that maybe he should have been responsible and told her. Like in humanity, we're a lot more responsible for the people that are around us than we often like to get off. Like there is this no man is an island reality, yet Yet we often think that we are. So for whatever reason, God holds him responsible for the fall, not her. So when you look in Genesis 3.9, after the fall, God comes looking for Adam, not for Eve. Uh, if you read the New Testament, Romans 5.12, Paul puts the responsibility of the fall on Adam, not on Eve. He says, by the sin of one man, death spread to the whole human race. And, and then he goes on and says, oh, you know, all, all people of sin. And here's here's maybe what I'm getting at. Eve was tricked. We clearly read that. Then we also clearly read that Adam, by an act of his will, an act of his decision, an act of his intention, he chose to defy God and sin. So the first freedom or freedoms that humans lost, it then was the will. We choose 
We chose a volitional act, a decision calculated uh, to rebel against God. We chose to sin. Now, since that first act of rebellion, our ability to consistently choose right, it's been tainted, it's been marred, it's been scarred. Theologians have a word for this, the bondage of the will. In fact, back when I was in seminary, that's been, man, that's been like 22 years, 23 years since I started that. I read a book by Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, called On the Bondage of the Will. And they were so certain, like theologians were so certain, like kind of Luther was one of the first that articulated it really well, that humans will choose to sin. Humans will choose to do wrong. Now, now you can argue against the dilemma, and you can say, well, that's not true. But, I mean, my goodness, you flip on the news and just watch the TV for a minute. People choose to mess up. Or you just walk in relationship with someone. For whatever reason, at some point, they will choose, you, you will choose to make a bad decision that goes against everything that you believe, everything that you've thought, you know. People have this bondage to do wrong. I read this book years ago, Men Are From Women, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And then the author, I think it was name was John Gray, he came out with a follow-up book. Men are from Mars, Women Are From Venus. Children are from heaven. And and you might think that and you might feel that. And surely children are a gift of God. And there's this tension I want to bring out that in Genesis 1, you know, humanity, we're created in God's image. We're created good. The starting point of creation is not the fall. The starting point of the creation is the beauty and glory of humanity. Simultaneously, you know, I think you can hold two things that seem to contradict each other. I think you can hold those in tension. That that's one of the lost arts, I would say, in our societies, everybody just sees everything in polar opposite, black and white, on the political sides of the aisle, everything. And the reality is we can hold some things in tension. One thing to hold in tension is we're created good in God's image. The other thing to hold in tension is Genesis 3, that everybody sins. One of the first memories I have of my baby girl, Emma, she's now in college, is, so this will take you way, way back, is she's she's headstrong, beautifully headstrong. And when she was sitting in a high chair at the first house that we bought, I remember one day, you know, for whatever reason, she's got some orange juice, sitting there drinking it. Hey, don't spill your juice. And, and she just holds the cup reaches her arm out, uh, almost as if the don't was the cue to just explore this. She holds her arm out over the edge of the tray that's there on the high chair. Still remember the tan tray, plastic high chair, and starts to just ease the glass over, like holding her hand, you know, first at, you know, straight up 90 degrees and then tilting down to 80 degrees forward you know, then to 75 degrees, then 70, 65, 60, to where all of a sudden you can start to see the liquid is about to get to that point to where it's just going to kind of break over and start going on the ground. Just seeing how close she can get it until there's the spill. And it's almost like the the, the rule incited the uh, audacity to break the rule. Okay, so again, large, small, big, little, whatever, the empirical evidence... 
as, as well as the thrust of Scripture, is that everybody chooses wrong. Uh, the Bible summarizes it like this. The prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep. You could even just say all of us like wandering sheep have gone astray. And, and again, we, we, we all know this. Our, our present condition is is really, it's, it's like this. We find ourselves enslaved to that same intentional, willful disobedience like Adam. We choose to do things like him, that literally destroy the very life that we're trying to build. You, you could express it like the Apostle Paul. He said this, uh, Romans 1, 22, and, and talk about like a timely verse that you you can see, again, on both sides of the political spectrum. You, you, so this isn't just like picking on one group or the other. This is kind of like, hey, this is the, <laughs> this is the human condition. Uh, Paul says, Romans 1, 22, Claiming to be wise, they showed their foolishness by their actions. You see that, right? I mean, no, no doubt you've seen people like this. Uh, people who strain politically correctness, uh, regurgitating cliches, spitting out party lines. And they say things that are outright stupid when they do so, right? I, I mean, again, both sides do it. Or, or you've seen people on an individual level, uh, they make dumb decisions, they do things that wreck them financially, that wreck them emotionally, physically, even relationally, somehow thinking that they're the rules, the exception um, to the rules of cause and effect. I know I've done that, <laughs> and it's almost like we can't help ourselves, yet, yet at the same time, we can explain away what we're doing with real slick, smooth-sounding language. Most of the time, it's in those generally short, pithy statements that are worthy of an Instagram post, a Facebook meme, a little gif. I mean, we all do it, right? And it's almost like we can't even help ourselves. Well, here's the good news. I've learned firsthand that firsthand, sin always, like my, my sin... It always takes you farther off course than we imagine possible. It generally does it quicker than you can fathom. The cost of it is always, or you could say almost always, way higher than you wanted to pay. That's the bad news. The flip side of that equation is even though the cost and strain of sin is harsher than what we thought, grace is always greater. Wherever you find sin, you find grace in an even greater measure. Now, that's straight Bible. That's Romans 5.20. In other words, grace always trumps sin. Every time. Uh, Romans 5.18, it argues that the same condemnation that Adam experienced that spreads to each of us, and the follow-up of that is grace and Christ redemption. It rushes to all people in that same measure. And in fact, when Paul writes this out, he intentionally uses this word. It's a Greek word. We don't even have it in English. It describes how much bigger and broader grace is than sin. He, he writes this, Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace, best translation we have, is super abounds. Sin abounds. Sin runs rampant. Sin costs you more. Sin extracts a higher toll emotionally. It costs you more sometimes financially, physically, it just, it sucks the life out of you. It 
abounds, yet as much as it abounds, grace superabounds all the more. Think about the two concepts side by side that I've told you about so far. First concept, Adam's intentional disobedience. Romans 5.18 says this, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act. So here, here we start getting into the other side. Even though through one man's righteous act, a free gift came to all men, resulting in sanctification of life. So that highlighted Adam's willful disobedience. Now look, look at Jesus' willful obedience. We just saw part of it in the end of that verse. We get it in the next verse. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience... So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's Romans 5, 19. So so question for you. How did Adam condemn himself? And and by virtue of that, us, right? Um, Well, it, it, it was by an act of the will, by an intentional decision to choose wrong, by an act of defiance, disobedience. Other side is, how does Jesus redeem our will? Well, it's by the opposite. It's not by an intentional act of disobedience. It's by an intentional act of obedience. It's by submitting himself willfully to the design of his Father. Now, if you read through Romans, it's it's an incredible book. Two chapters after Paul lays out this juxtaposition between what Adam did and what Jesus does, he he writes a, this verse of this tension that Paul uh, th- that he felt. Uh, he just kind of spells that. Let, let me just read it. It's it's Romans seven fourteen. Let let me read it, and then I want to make a couple observations about it. He just starts right this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but but I am carnal. I am sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. If then I do what I desire not to do, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I, I do not find inside of me. For the good that I desire to do, I do not do, but the evil I desire not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I desire not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells inside of me. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my body. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, think on that a, a minute. Like, maybe you felt that topsy-turvy, back-and-forth, can't-quite-get-it-together type of thing. 
a, a few observations. Uh, here, here's, here's one thing he says. I am under compulsion, a drive to sin. That's Romans 7, 14. Some driving force causes us to rebel. The, the Bible proposes, I mean, even I, I could even be more specific about it and say even this, that even Jesus says, I mean, it's in red letters, that we're slaves of sin. That's John 8, 34. In the ancient days, when a slave was being sold, a soldier would hold a spear over their head, denoting that they were under the authority of another. Um, they weren't free. That's what Paul is saying. It, even Jesus says that, that, that we were shackled, we, we were sold under the authority of sin. Sin has its spear over your head, over my head, showing ownership and entitlement to us. Here's another thing Paul says. Romans 7.15, I do the very things I hate, the things I don't want to do. I mean, he's clear. Like n- None of us are happy with the condition that we often find ourselves in. It, it's almost as if none of us really, really need a hellfire and brimstone message to make us feel bad. We, we already feel condemned. We're doing the things we don't want to do. We want to be good, but there's this tension that we feel that we have haven't quite measured up. And you, you might say, I mean, this this happens regularly. In my previous line of work, I talked about that kind of in the intro to this entire series. I was working with drug addicts, homeless people coming off the streets, out of prison, human trafficking. I, I never met an addict. I never met a former prostitute. I never met a convicted felon. I, I never met anybody in any of those situations who was proud of what they had done. They were they were burdened by it. Um, some of them even being burdened, if you got the stories of things that they, they were forced and trapped into doing. And now in public, you know, often they would reveal a tougher or smoother exterior, just as many of us do. But on their own, as you start getting into the stories, they're different. They're like you and I, human. Um, Many wanted a way out of their former self. They just couldn't climb out of a hole no matter how hard they tried. It it was just this almost downward spiral in which they became more and more desperate. Even falling lower, the harder they climbed. Now, just shooting straight, pulling back the curtain, I've, I've been there. You probably have too. And Paul goes on, he makes this third observation. He says, it's not really me doing it, but it's the sin in me that overpowers me. That's Romans 7, 17. Now, he's not absolving himself. And he's not giving himself a hall pass and go, well, it wasn't me, it was something in me. It, it's not that at all. He's just acknowledging that inside there is this tug of war. There is this good desire. There is this bad drive. It's, it's depicted in cartoons as like this angel and devil. And he acknowledges something is broken, fallen, is maybe the word. It's inside of us, and that fallen, depraved, let's use that, that side often wins that tug of war, and we, like Paul, feel powerless to flip that thing around, to turn it in the opposite direction. His next point, 
in Romans 7.18 is this. In fact, nothing good, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Now, here's maybe where I want to make an observation. And, and I know this is kind of getting to be like theologically dense. So I'll put all the information in the show notes where you can just kind of read back and, and look. And I would encourage you maybe to just like, hey, just scroll the audio back and just re-listen to this little section here. He says, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Now, here, here's one thing I would say is the spirit in you is one with the spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.17. But even after we come to Christ, even after that, that faith transaction is, that, that is, is alive, and we're awakened to his grace, even after that, there, there can be this battle between the inner man, the spirit man, or the spirit woman, and the outer, which we refer to, Paul refers to, as the flesh. And it's almost like Jesus even says this in Mark 14, 38, when he goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's laying down his will, not my will, but your will. And he comes back to the disciples and he says, hey, no, 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 watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in that moment, he may be talking about himself because he's praying three times, take this cup away, not my will, but your will. And he also knows that their spirit may be willing. Like even Peter said, even if everybody denies you, like I'll die with you. Spirit's willing, but then you know Peter denied Jesus three times. You know that the other disciples all fled for their lives. Now, now one, John came back and was there standing at the foot of the cross with Jesus. But there, there, there is this tension, spirit willing, flesh weak. Now, inter- interestingly enough, the flesh here, it isn't evil. Uh, the flesh isn't good or bad. It's neutral. Um, like money isn't good or bad. Money's neutral. Fire is not good or bad. It's neutral. Sex is not good or bad. It's neutral. All of those things can be used, money, sex, or fire, for beautiful, redeemed, God-given, God-ordained purposes that can create, that can help, that can bring life, sustenance, or they can wreak havoc. Uh, The flesh is the same way. Your body is the same way. Your mind, your emotions, they're the same. Um, they're there waiting to be used. They're not, they're not as strong as your spirit. They can submit to the spirit. The danger is we often live from the body and its cravings. We often live from the mind. We often live from our emotions and not the other way around. And when that, when that happens, Romans seven nineteen kicks in where Paul says, I keep on doing evil despite my desire to be good. I mean, doing what we're supposed to do, it is often far easier said than done. And Paul, the apostle, he found himself in this destructive pattern. He, I mean, even Paul was persecuting Christians when we first meet him in the Bible. He is holding the cloaks, the coats, of the people that are stoning the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He is literally, finds out, in Acts 9.5, that he's been working against God's intended purposes instead of working for him. And uh, as he says in Philippians 3.6, it was his religious zeal that drove him to do this. That, that is how 
in bondage he was, despite his desire to do good. Another observation he makes, I've just got a few more. He says, Romans 7.22, I, I delight in God's law in my spirit, but my flesh, it keeps warring to sin, almost fighting for the ability to do wrong, F- fighting for the ability and the freedom to loot, pillage, destroy. Now, think about that. And part of the tension that many of us feel um, is very similar. He speaks of these feelings of wanting to do right, but there is this war almost inside. And and I know he's so repetitious in this. Like he just keeps saying the same thing over and over, almost stacking thing on thing on thing and saying layer after layer after layer. So uh, what does it look like? It, It looks like we commit to honoring our spouse, but then we find ourselves snapping, short, arguing. Uh, and, and then you're arguing before long about the fact that you're even arguing. You don't even know what the original disagreement was about. That's what he's talking about. Or, or we decide, let's just get practical. Practical. We decide it's time to lose weight, to take control of our health, to treat our body as a temple so that we can live out the amazing call that God's placed upon us. Yet then we continue punting, pushing even the simplest of things off to the next day. Or we feel, hey, it's time to kick the addiction. You know, during COVID, quarantine, your alcohol tolerance goes way up. There's day drinking happening. And there's things that you go, well, golly, I would never do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I got to kick it. And then you start to kick. And then as soon as you do it, oh, whatever reason. And usually it's a, you know, quote, good reason, justifiable. You're like, oh, mm. and then you feel this angst and shame or, or you know we, we begin pursuing our destiny towards the thing God's called us to do and then there's a little pause as, as is the case with so many things in life and then we decide we'll we'll pause it indefinitely until the next checklist is completed or until the next crisis of the week is over it, it, and there always seems to be something that's warring against us pursuing the life that we know that we're called to live and some of these things are purpose related some are obedience related some are relational i mean there just seems to be this hold back i mean and you know you know the saying even the road to hell is paved with good intentions right right i mean paul goes on i romans 7:24 i'm i'm wretched I need major help. That, that's what he says. And then in 725, he says, my flesh keeps serving this law of sin. Now, sin is this Bible term, and we typically link sin to, uh, you know, the big heavy hitters, um, lying, cheating, uh, uh, sex, drugs, and alcohol, right? Like that's where we usually kind of lean that one. But, but sin means like literally to miss the mark. It is an archery term that means you didn't hit the bullseye. So he's saying, like, my my flesh, I have this desire, but I keep missing the target. No matter how hard I try, and the target can be related to any area of your life. The target doesn't just have to be one of those big, you know, taboo, oh, that's the, you know, we always have 
especially in church world, the heavy hitters, and then we overlook like all the other little things, you know, the gossip. We overlook the just not keeping your word, even keeping your word to yourself. We overlook the all the, and he's like, we even overlook the things like, man, I was going to get on a schedule and start just getting bed at a certain time so that I'm productive in the morning. You know, I missed the target. Miss, miss the mark. And, and I'm not equating that with some of the bigger things we do. I'm just saying we tend to want to hit target, miss it. Well, but let me let me give you the hope uh, because where, again, sin, missing the target abounds, grace superabounds every time. Remember this, everywhere that Jesus shed his blood, I've said in this series, is a place where he marked your life, my life, for redemption. So when Jesus shed his blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he rescued us from the life of bondage that Paul writes about. At the end of Paul's struggle that he's talking about between sin and self, the, the one we just read and discussed here on the podcast, he, he says this, like, and, and this is almost his conclusion. Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Now, two things I want you to see there. Number one, no condemnation. You're no longer guilty. No more pronouncement of failure. Number two, you have freedom from sin. You're no longer ensnared by that tug of war. Now, now both of those are important. As I've mentioned a few times, you're, you're not just saved from something, not just saved from the first, not just saved from sin, not just saved from what's wrong. You're saved to freedom. The children of Israel were slave from they were they were enslaved and they were saved from slavery and saved to simultaneously go to the promised land, go to their destiny. Not just slaved and then freed to just wander in the wilderness. Enslaved and then freed enslaved and then saved to go to the promise. You and I are saved from condemnation, saved from condemnation and saved to freedom from the things that condemned us in the first place, saved from guilt and then saved to walk in a life free of the things that caused the guilt, saved to walk in our destiny. Uh, scripture says Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works that verify that we're, we're in that condition Paul was in, in that spiral. And, and he purifies us from doing the things that fallen people do. So we no, no longer need to walk in shame and guilt. No, no longer need to identify ourselves based on things we've done in the past, things that all, all people are apt to do. But, but, but I want you to grab hold of both sides of that. He frees us from the sin such that we're no longer bound to continue seeing. Okay, okay. Uh, these things occur on a daily basis. It, and I'm not arguing that we should just act better or that we should go try to muster up the courage to behave. These activities all have to do with an overflow of a new redeemed heart. When the heart changes, when the inside transforms, 
actions change automatically. Remember, we've talked about that a couple times in the series, that even obedience is an overflow. That was in talk number four. Um, what you do, we talked about this, I think two talks before that, is an overflow of who you are. So when your identity is transformed, things change. And, and here, here's how it occurs. Whereas Adam gave away his freedom and our freedom in the garden, Jesus regained it, and then Jesus returned it to you. Here, here's how. Matthew says that Jesus prayed, Matthew 26, 39, and, and following. Just grab it in your scripture, read it. Not my will, but as you will. And, and notably, look, this is written in the context of Jesus wishing there was another way to secure our redemption, another way besides facing the cross. In fact, he begged his father three times, is what Mark 14, 41 says, if there's any other cup, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not what I desire, not what I will, but what you will. And before praying, I said this a couple of minutes ago, Jesus told his disciples they too should watch and pray with him. And he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is strong. The flesh, well, here's what was going on. As Jesus was experiencing that internal tug of war, that internal tension that you and I often experience, that the good in you, which is God's spirit connected with your spirit, wants to walk the perfect path that God has ordained, no matter how difficult it may be. The flesh, though, the mind, the body, the emotions, it wants another easier route. In other words, Jesus endured that same struggle that Paul wrote about in Romans 7, 14 through 25, that passage we just shared about the good that I want to do, I don't do that. The bad that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And, and, and I know like that desperate condition sounds strange that you would put that on Jesus, but Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that he was tempted in every single way that we're tempted. The biggest part of the flesh, I think, that you see there and see in us, the part that Paul alludes to causing his struggle is the soul, the mind, the emotions, the spirit you have that I have, again, one with God's spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 17. And it is strong, as Jesus says. Your spirit stands ready to obey. But, but our minds need to be transformed. They need to be renewed. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And notice again, G Jesus doesn't focus on the weak part of you. He doesn't emphasize that the flesh is feeble. He just acknowledges, hey, the flesh is weak. He reminded the disciples, and he would remind you, that the spirit inside is willing, is able, and that strength is in you now as your spirit is renewed and is now one with his. In fact, some commentators, some Bible commentators say based on Paul's uh, conclusion there in Romans 8.1 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and then his continuation for he has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is this drive, this propensity to do wrong. Some people say that Paul is right there sketching out in Romans 7, 14 through 25, his condition before he came to Christ. That it is before that Damascus Road conversion, before that life change. Now, here's what I would encourage you to do is just reread that passage or just scroll back and listen to it here and see if that resonates with you. 
See, Luke's version of the garden account, way different than Adam's. Adam experiences that tension, which then Paul experienced, which you and I experience. But Luke says that when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he laid down his will. Scripture says in Luke twenty-two forty-three that an angel then appeared to him. An angel appeared in the Old Testament to Daniel in Daniel ten eighteen. So there could be precedent that there's supernatural assistance even for you too. Hebrews one fourteen says angels are ministering servants sent to serve the inheritors of salvation. That's you. That's me. An angel strengthened Jesus, even in that desperate time, to do the will of the Father. And scripture says in Luke twenty two forty four, he was in such agony that he prayed, and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling out of his pores to the ground. What does the blood mean? Where did it come from? Well, I found this quote. Medical doctors confirm that at times of intense fear or agony, a person's blood vessels can literally break beneath the skin and blood will begin to come out of the pores like sweat. Out of Jesus' pores came sweat and blood because of the anxiety, the fear, and the turmoil he's experiencing. That's the struggle, the inner struggle that Paul described. That's the inner struggle that you and I often experience it amplified to the point of bleeding for your redemption. And again, Jesus told his disciples, rise and pray so they wouldn't fall into temptation. He encouraged them to connect to the spirit. He believed that they, that you, that I can live from spirit with a will that surrendered to the father, just as he did. Not saying it's easy. In fact, the scripture admits It was hard, but because of redemption, it was possible. It wasn't simple to understand, easier said than done, but doable because of the redemption of the blood that he shed. Do you see? My prayer for you today is that the Lord would bless you, the Lord would keep you. The Lord would be gracious to you, shine his face of favor on you, and and that you, whenever you sense that struggle, that tension between here's the good I want to do, but I feel this drive to do this other thing. Whether the thing is big or small, that in that moment you would hear this voice behind you saying, you got it? You're connected to spirit. This has been redeemed. Choose and do best. Grace, peace. I'll see you again soon.